Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Jesus, name above all names, I worship you. Jesus, worthy to be praised, I worship you. Hi everybody, I'm Jordan Pine. And I'm Andy Balog. Welcome to another episode of 20-Minute Bible Studies. The Bible commands, do not love the world. But what does loving the world really mean? And what exactly should we be doing to avoid falling into that trap? Let's listen now to the Word of God. A reading from the Apostle John's first letter. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. That was 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. First, let's use the SPACE method. SPACE is an acronym that reminds us to consider the SP, the speaker, A, the audience, and C, context of a Bible reading before attempting an E or an explanation. So we see here that the speaker is the Apostle John, and the audience is the churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. John wrote the Gospel of John and also three letters, of which this is one of them. And while exiled to the island of Patmos at the end of his life, he also received the revelation and wrote that book of prophecy. Yeah, John was the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is why he received some of the deepest revelations from God. Um, This letter was likely written from Ephesus, where the Ephesian church was located, and to whom the book of Ephesians was written. Ephesus was the home base of Christianity in that region of Asia Minor that we talked about. And this letter was written late in John's life, probably around AD 90. In other words, the audience was mature Christians to whom John had been a teacher and shepherd for many decades. As for the context, because Ephesus was the philosophical center of the ancient Greek world, worldly teaching, which was false teaching, had entered the church. The main false teaching at the time is what we call today as Gnosticism, which was taught by people called Gnostics. Now, Gnostics rejected a central claim of the gospel, and that is that God became man in the form of Christ Jesus. Much of this epistle is a direct rebuke and correction of their false teaching. Even the famous opening of John's gospel is a rebuke to the Gnostics. John 1.1 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, listen carefully, it says, And the Word became flesh, that's a direct rebuke to the Gnostics, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thanks, Jordan. So now that we've considered the speaker, the audience, and the context, we're better equipped to give our explanation today. So let's break down this passage of Scripture, Jordan. Yeah, there's quite a bit to unpack here, and some of it is tough to hear. 
The main thing we want to focus on is love for the world. What does it mean, and how can we possibly get over it, if you will? We'll also note a few things about qualification for the kingdom, which, of course, is always the focus of our ministry. So, Andy, let's start with verse 1 of 1 John 2. Okay, so I'll read that, Jordan. And it reads, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not of ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Okay, Jordan, I have a question for you. What does it mean when it says in Scripture that Jesus is our advocate? Well, Andy, the Greek word is parakletas, which basically, if you break that word down, it has para, which is like in parallel or paramilitary, it means alongside of, and kletos, which is a form of the word that's found in ekklesia, which is the Greek word that we've translated in English, church. Ek means out, and klesia is called, so out called is really what church means literally in the Greek. So parekletas literally means alongside called, or called to one side. And it was used in a court of justice to denote counsel for the defense, or an advocate, as it says, or generally one who pleads another's case, an intercessor. And that's from Vine's Expository Dictionary. You know, in Romans 8, verse 34, it reads, Jordan, to your point, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Jordan, I'd like to talk a little bit about the three offices of Jesus, just for our listeners at home or driving or wherever you might be, just to get familiar with this. It's important to our lesson today. And just to be brief, his first office when he first came was the position of prophet. He came to speak on behalf of God. It's how we get the majority of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John today. And he also suffered a prophet's death by being killed and crucified outside the city gates of Israel. And then now his current office is that he is our high priest. He is the one who is currently our advocate, or in simple terms, he's our attorney. And who would want to have anybody else as their attorney in front of God the Father other than Jesus Christ, who's an expert at the law? So that's wonderful. And then one day when he returns on earth, he will come back as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, which he will be king. So he started as a prophet. He's currently the high priest, and he will one day become king. Yeah, so focusing on his advocacy or his role as advocate is to focus on his second office, which is also his current office in time, his future office being king. I have another question, Jordan, for you. What does propitiation mean? What does that mean? Yeah, it's a big word. Uh, We generally only hear it in, um, you know, in theological context. Um, Again, we should look at the, the Greek word, which is halasmus, and that basically is a means of appeasement or atonement. And, you know, really simplified, a synonym would be a satisfaction or the satisfaction. The Latin root of propitiation, the English word, just means to make favorable. So really, he's our satisfaction. He's the one who makes us favorable to God, if you want to break down the Latin and Greek meanings of those words. And, um, you know, what does that mean exactly, Andy? Well, I think a good analogy might be, let's say, I owe a debt to you, Jordan, okay? And, you know, time goes on, weeks roll into months, months into years, and, you know, there, there's a little bit of discontent there. You're, you're upset with me. We used to be so close, and now we're not. And then here comes my brother, Steve, and he knows that I owe you this money. 
So he goes and says, Andy, why are you so upset? Why aren't you and Jordan close anymore the way you used to be? And I say, well, I owe him a debt. So then my brother comes in and says, well, how much is it? It's X amount of dollars. I'll pay that. You're my brother, Andy. I'll pay that debt and make propitiation to Jordan for what you owed. And I I guess that would maybe, you know, a down-to-earth analogy for us to understand what Jesus did for us. However, that debt could never be paid. The, The debt for our sins is, according to Romans, it requires blood. It requires death. Right. And Jesus actually fulfilled that by dying on the cross and paying for sin in full, for all men. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. He satisfied the debt that, that no one else could sa- satisfy. There's exactly. a whole um, there's a whole sermon on that in the Latin, but basically the, the gist of it is the famous one. But why did God become man? Because man himself could never satisfy the debt. Only a God-man could satisfy that debt. Amen, Jordan. Another question for you. Why is it important that verse 2 says, not for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world? Yeah, I mean, to answer that question, you, you got to go and look at what critics say. You know, critics say Christianity is unacceptable because it condemns anyone who doesn't believe to hell. And this verse that you're talking about is sort of an answer to that. You know, some people will quote Second Peter 3.9 to refute that idea. They'll say, you know, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But as we've covered in another um, lesson, that's not, not the right verse to use, Andy. Why is that not the right verse for, to answer that question? Well, Jordan, if we look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 carefully, there's a couple key words that we need to focus on in order to be able to give the explanation appropriate versus some other verses. And in case you don't know and you're new to, the, to our program and new to our ministry, there actually is more than one salvation. We've often talked about how there's a trichotomy of man. There's three parts to man. When Adam fell, he fell all in all three parts. He fell spirit, soul, and body, right? So we know that depending on where you're reading in Scripture, it's really important to know the context. Otherwise, you're going to get a misinterpretation of doctrine. So in, for this instance here, Peter is, is using the words repentance, and repentance when you directly translate, that means to go back. So he cannot be speaking to a lost man, telling a lost man to go back, because, you know, you can't do that. Where did he come from to begin with? No, he's talking to someone, people who are already saved, who have probably deviated or fallen away or apostate, or just warning them not to apostate. So that, that's what, what the context is here. Um, you know, maybe there's some other verses that you can show our, our, our listeners at home that speak more to the initial salvation, Jordan, and not to the secondary or the soul salvation. Yeah, so just to build on what you're saying, by the way, all the epistles are written to save people. So anytime you're reading an epistle or a letter, you're reading a letter written to save people. So, you know, these letters weren't written to the lost world. That's one key point that you brought out, Andy. Um, and also, you know, you go back earlier in Second Peter 3, he's saying, beloved, beloved, again, telling you that he's addressing that letter to the beloved who are people who are already saved. So that, that verse is, is um, you know, the Lord not being slow, you know, as some count slowness, it's saying he's patient towards you to come back to, like you said, to return back to a righteous path. That's why he's delayed his coming. It's not about salvation. But the verse we saw today, 1 John 2, 2, that's the right verse to use to kind of refute that, that critique, if you will, that, you know, um, that uh, Christianity is unacceptable because it condemns anyone who doesn't believe to hell. 
we, we, we just read where it says that, um, that Christ died not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Right. So the word, going back to 2 Peter 3, 9, trying to, you know, let's break this down just one more time before we go on, is that quite often non-Christians might use this verse to argue the point that you're trying to bring out, which basically it says here that in those verses, God does not wish for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But in context, he doesn't mean perish, go to, to the lake of fire. He's talking about a Christian perishing because they're losing their inheritance, and we will, they will not have access to the millennial kingdom. They will suffer the second death. Right. So in context, it's key to understand that. So to your point earlier, again, it, it's, you've got to be able to support, if you're going to make an argument about you know, where we are in salvation and what's acceptable and what isn't, according to critics, You've got to be able to to, to use the right verse um, in, in the application. Yeah, even right. About. So for a Christian, you, you don't want to pull out the wrong verse and have it actually be wrong. So th- that's important. And First John two two is a much better verse. It, it basically is talking about, and, and we've used these terms before. Second Peter is about the prize, and this First John verse here is about the gift. And the gift is there, waiting for anyone to accept it, lost or you know the, any lost person to accept it. Which means the critics kind of have it backwards because. God really doesn't condemn anyone to hell. They sort of condemn themselves, right? Um, C.S. Lewis talked about this in The Great Divorce, one of his many books. C.S. Lewis is the guy that did the Chronicles of Narnia, but he, was, he wrote many more books on apolog- Christian apologetics. And he says there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. In other words, it's God's will and his plan for salvation, or your own choice and plan for salvation which, of course, is really no plan at all, since all fall short of the glory of God. Right, so maybe not thy will be done, Father, but my will be done. Right, right? exactly. I mean, that's the stubbornness of man today. So, of course, Jordan, we know everything is predestined, but C.S. Lewis speaks to how the mindset of the critics is the opposite of reality, really is the opposite of what's really going on. And again, what I like to use often is just because people don't believe me or they don't understand me doesn't mean I'm wrong, Right. Right. So if they don't understand it or can't figure it out or they disagree, it still doesn't mean I'm wrong because we stand on what the Word of God says. Okay, so going to our next verses, uh, 1 John 2, now verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So a question for you, Andy. You know, some teach this passage is a way to know that you are saved. But why is that the wrong way to look at it? Well, Jordan, I mean, we really need to understand the difference between salvation by grace and salvation by works. And you would say, well, how could you have both? You can, as long as you know what salvation we're talking about. What are we saved from? A man or a woman who, for the first time in their life, hears the word of God and accepts Jesus as the one who is worthy enough to pay for their sin, is, has initial spirit salvation. If there's a Christian years down the road who is not following God's commandments, who finds himself, you know, making a mistake, like, I, I'll tell you, like these verses you just read, they pierce my heart, okay? Right. So it puts fear in my heart. Man, how, how off am I? Just listening to these verses, I mean, am I a liar? Am I, by, by me not following God's commandments, does that make me a liar? 
And then I think of Paul in Romans when he says, you know, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're not perfect, but these verses help us strive for perfection by consistently confessing our sins and, and seeking God and his word. So, you know, again, that leads me to, to a key word here, and that word is perfect, Jordan. What we want to do is seek after perfection. And maybe you could help our listeners know, what does perfect mean? Does that mean being sinless, or does it mean something else? Yeah, again, it's another English word that you really have to go into the Greek to get the true flavor of it, because we read perfect as flawless, right? Right. And it's not saying that. What it's really saying in the Greek, the word is teleos, which is, um, it means basically to carry through to completion, to accomplish, to bring to an end. You know, teleos is actually a high flute in English word that sort of means that same thing. And it comes from the Greek. It's basically saying that whoever keeps Jesus's words, um, in them the love of God has been completed or accomplished. It's this, uh, in other words, you know, spiritual maturity has been ach- achieved, in, in essence. And yes. That, that's what the word really means. Yes, absolutely. Maturity to the point that you're willing to complete the race, do whatever it takes to complete the race for God. Very good, Jordan. One more question. John says the proof that we are on the path to the kingdom is that we, quote unquote, keep his commandments. What are his commandments? Yeah, so that's speaking of uh, Jesus's commandments, uh, as opposed to God's commandments. And of course, Jesus is God, so they're all God's commandments. But you know, the the casual reader will tend to think of the of the Ten Commandments, which are also obviously foundational to the Christian faith. But um, as far as Jesus's commandments go, we actually did a whole uh, lesson on this. We identified twelve from the Sermon on the Mount, um, which we discuss at length in that episode, which is called the 12 Commandments. And here are the 12 Commandments, which you can find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 on the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, do not stay angry with others because anger is murder. Do not desire, number two, anyone but your spouse because lust is adultery. Number three, do not swear oaths. Be a person of your word. Number four, do not take revenge. Turn the other cheek. You'll recognize that. It's famous. Number five, do not hate your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for them, also famous. Number six, do not take personal glory for charity. And these, these are three together. Do not take personal glory for charity, give in secret. Do not take personal glory for prayer, pray in private. And do not take personal glory for fasting, fast secretly. So those three to go together, that's six, seven, and eight. Nine, do not desire material things, desire to serve God instead. Number 10, do not worry. Worry is actually mentioned in a commandment. Don't worry about material things. Have faith that God will provide. Number 11, do not judge people. Focus on your own shortcomings only. And number 12, do not mistreat people. Treat them the way you want them to treat you, also known as the golden rule. Question, Jordan. What does it mean to love the world? Yeah, that's a key uh, phrase that he uses. And I think um, there are three signs of it that John identifies in our passage today. The lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So I mean, what are some examples of those, Andy? I'll put it back to you. Sure. I mean, I think the best way to do it is maybe look at, and we talked about this in a, in a prior lesson, is to look at how Satan actually tempted Eve, and he also tempted Jesus Christ when he was in the wilderness after his baptism, right? So if we look at those three temptations, it was tempting, trying to tempt Jesus in, in things of the flesh, the desire of the flesh, or trying to tempt him by what he sees with his eyes, and of course, the boastful pride of life. So if you know that story, if you go back, those are probably perfect examples for right. you to understand what John is trying to teach us, to be warning us from. 
Yeah, the flesh was, uh, he was, you know, obviously fasting, so he was hungry, tried to get him to, you know, eat, break his fast and eat food, you know. The lust of the eyes was, was all the glory of how much glory you could have, you know, stuff like that. And of course, for, for us, we can, we can think of many lusts of the flesh, lust of the eyes for the modern era. I mean, it, it, it's pretty easy to come up with examples. Um, so, um, and then John also says, by the way, that the world is passing away. I found that to be a, a very interesting statement. Um, Andy, what, what does that mean? I mean, more, more specifically, if you're looking at it with, uh, you know, kingdom eyes on. Sure. Well, world, the word world in the Greek is the same word from which we get the word cosmos as in the universe. Now, science says from the time of the Big Bang until now that the universe has been expanding and slowing down. But is it passing away? Now, if by universe we mean heaven and earth, then yeah, it, it is. But let's remember what Jesus said, Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then Peter also wrote in 2 Peter 3, 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then finally, Revelation 21, 1 reads, a new heaven and a new earth, this is what John saw, for the first heaven and the first, first, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Yeah, so in other words, the answer to the question is that these things are destined for destruction and then there'll be a new creation. So in that, in that sense of the word cosmos, you know, the, the, um, the universe is passing away and will pass away and there'll be a, a new universe in that sense. So finally, uh, Andy, John ends this passage by saying, the one who does the will of God lives forever. And that, of course, raises the question, isn't that salvation by works does the will of God? And if not, what exactly does this, this phrase mean? Okay, so probably my favorite question of the day, and, uh, and briefly bring out some bullet points for all of our listeners to keep in mind. Let's look at that word literally in the Greek. And the word forever is actually three words in the Greek, and it's for the eon, or for the age. That's how we translate it today. And, but the question might be, well, which age? And of course, we're, we're talking about the kingdom age, which is the thousand-year age, the future age to come after the church age, when Jesus Christ will rule and reign on the earth. Now, remember, whoever does the will of God, dies to the world, gets to live during the millennial kingdom. So, so the one who does the will of God lives forever is literally saying the one who does the will of God does good works gets to live for the kingdom age. And that's really what it says, as opposed to some commentary about eternal life, which is why it's not salvation by works. As you brought out earlier, we're not talking about the gift. We're not talking about spirit salvation. We're talking about soul salvation, salvation into the kingdom. Right, the prize. So, Jordan, give us some recaps and takeaways for our listeners today. Okay, so first of all, God's command is clear. Do not love the world. And loving the world is loving the lusts of the flesh as in, for example, sexual morality. It's also loving the lust of the eyes, as in, I don't know, worshiping clothes and hair and makeup and tan skin and muscular or voluptuous bodies, whatever examples you want to fill in there. And loving the world is also loving the boastful pride of life, as in all the things glorified, let's say, in popular music, like money, fame, talent, you know, ego-building stuff. We contrast all of these things with what the Bible says are the signs of loving God which are the fruits of the Spirit, right, Andy? Absolutely, and, and things like humility and selflessness and self-control, and we recommend you study Galatians chapter 5 in detail to learn a little bit more of that. Well, that's the way God wants us to live, and I think we all agree to that, and that is our lesson. 
Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple and to the Abundant Life Worship Center for the music for our show. I'm Steve Zioli. Until next time, may the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Mysteries of the Kingdom Incorporated.